You are listening to the sermon audio from 12th Street Baptist Church in Rainbow City, Alabama. More information about our church can be found online at www.12th.co. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you this morning. If you would turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. We'll be finishing out this series called Come to the Table. And uh, if you have not been checking in with us over the last couple of weeks and you're tuning in right now on our live stream or if you're here for the first time in a while, uh, I want to encourage you to go back and check out these previous sermons in this series as it's talking about the fact that Jesus wants us all to come to be face-to-face with him at the table because he wants to transform us. He's in the business of transformation. He's not just about being a figurehead or being a political personality. He is someone who wants to change individuals and bring us into a family, a faith family. And today is a day in the history of the church that we celebrate with other Christians all around the world because this day is the one Sunday before the day we celebrate as Resurrection Day. And so this is a day that we want to celebrate in a big way today. And instead of, though, going to the place where many will be today, we are going to look in a different place in Scripture. Most are going to be looking at the moment we sang about earlier where Jesus came into the city, getting ready for the moment where he would go and die on the cross for us and that they would uh, sing Hosanna to him and then turn on him days later. But today we're going to look together at a part of that story that really we would normally look at on the Thursday night prior to Easter, but I wanted to do it today as it's a part of kind of how we've been trending for the last several weeks about coming to the table, and it's where Jesus brings his disciples to the table with him, and as he gathers with them to lead them to to know who he is rightly and to experience life with him around the table and to transform their understanding of everything they thought they knew We're going to see how that can also transform us. And so if you would look at Luke chapter 22, verse 14 and on. This is what we call either the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper. Now, I won't say Last Supper again because it's not the last. Uh, This is a picture of what is to come at the end of time when we go to be home with our Lord and Savior at the marriage supper of the Lamb that we'll refer to later. And it's, a, it's the institution of that. It's the institution of what we call the Lord's Supper or communion because we gather together around the table with the Lord, with one another to celebrate something that he kind of turned on its ear, something that had been pointing to one thing for years and years and years and centuries and then got turned back over to being about the greater thing, which was always meant, as always its purpose, was to point to the greater thing, which was the coming of Christ, his death, burial, and his resurrection. And so I hope today that you'll join with us in that and that we will see some things that the Lord will change us as we look at these things, change us in our inner being, change us in how we interact with one another. And so I just want to read it for us at first. We're going to read a little further than what you expect. We're looking at Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 14, and we will go over to verse 34. Uh, The reason for that is Luke puts all these things kind of around the table, And so we're going to read the entire narrative, and then I think we're going to see how God wants us to think a little differently. So let me pray for us before we do that even, and then we'll endeavor to walk through the text together. Father, we are, for lack of better terms, we are simpletons in the way that we continually think that we've got it down, and then you remind us of how we are still still sinners who need a Savior. And Lord, we are thankful 
that you remind us of that because it puts us back face to face with you. And although this week there are many things I'm sure in our lives that could have directed our paths certain ways and got our minds focused on various things, I ask right now that you would bring our attention to you, that we would see your truth from your word about your son Jesus and that we would be changed forevermore for your glory, for our joy, for the building up of this faith family and for the glory of your name to be broadcast around the world through our work, not just on a live stream feed, but Lord, as we go out into our community and as we impact lives with this good news about Jesus. So Lord, we pray you would work in us and change us and that we would see that we are more like Jesus as we leave than when we first came in. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys ready? Okay, so the second service really speaks back to me a lot more. And I think maybe it's just a generational thing for some of you. And for some of you, it's not. Uh, but I, I want to encourage you to speak back to me a little bit, okay? So this is interactive. I know preaching, you think of it as a monologue, but it's really a dialogue. And so I want you to speak back to me at least in some head nods or something. So are you all ready? Yes, good. All right, thank you. Here we go. We're going to look at chapter 22, starting in verse 14. And let's just let the, the water of the word wash over us this morning. And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. In fact, let me pause right there and say, it doesn't, the English just cannot do it justice. He, he doesn't say, I have earnestly desired. It's more like, with desire, I desire to eat the Passover with you. Okay, it's a really weird statement, actually, and it's a double kind of statement in the Hebrew and Greek idea where it would, would show you emphasis, emotional emphasis, uh, a strong desire. In fact, that word for desire is often used for, in a negative context in the New Testament, for the word we see as lust. All right, but that's not a negative here, it's a positive. He's saying, with desire, I desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed." And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. And by the way, that word benefactor is a really strange word. We don't see it so much in how we do things today. But a benefactor was somebody, and still is, that does so much for you that you kind of owe them your life that they're the ones who sponsor you, they kind of get you out of the pit, they bring you up financially or politically or socially in such a way that you owe them everything, and so your life is kind of spent paying them back. All right, so look at that verse again as we see 
the way that's stated. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leaders as one who the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Obviously, the answer should be the one who reclines at table, the one who's being served. But Jesus says, "Is it not the one who reclines at table?" But I am among you as the one who serves. Verse twenty-eight: You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. That's a command there. Strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord... I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. That's Peter, right? Peter's the guy that's always like, no way, man, not me. I'm going to take it to town. I'm going all the way. But Jesus said to him, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. And this is a huge, huge package that Luke has put together for us. They're hanging around the table. They're partaking in the Passover meal. In fact, if you go back a little further, starting around verse 7, you would actually notice that Jesus is doing a little counterintelligence going on here because he didn't let Judas know where they were going to be so that this supper would not be interrupted. He sent off two of his disciples to go and find a guy who would see them, and they would recognize him, this guy that's going to help them. They would recognize him because he's carrying a jar of water. And that's unique because most men would carry water in some wine skins or some water skins, not in a jar. That was what ladies carried it in. And so this guy carrying the jar would stand out. And so when they see him, they know he's the guy to help. And these other two disciples go with this guy, and they prepare a place that's in an upper room ready for this Passover meal. That means they would have had to take that Passover uh, lamb that had take it to get it prepared by taking it to the temple and on the day of this time frame right before passover this lamb would be taken to the temple and with everybody else they would fill up as many people as they could into the temple area in the outer courts inner courts they would close the doors and they would do a sacrifice and they would catch the blood of the lamb and they would then throw it on the altar and they would give them some back, and they would take them, basically on the way out, they would be walking out with this lamb who had been skinned and who was over their shoulder to use for the meal for Passover. Pretty gruesome, I know, but this is what they had to do. And so that blood spilt on the altar was to remind them what happened at Passover back in the day, which we'll get into in a minute. And these guys would then take that and get it ready in this secretive upper room where they were going to be because Jesus wanted to have this uninterrupted time right before he goes to sacrifice himself on the cross with his disciples. And he knows, he says it in here, that Judas is there and he says, the one who's going to betray me is here with us right now. Now, I want us to take into this for a minute to understand what's happening here at the 30,000-foot level before we jump into it at the smaller unit. So I'm going to make a big statement, and then we're going to walk it back from there. And this is a pretty obvious statement, but don't let, it miss, don't let you yourself miss the importance of this. The cross of Christ that Jesus is headed toward, that he's speaking of in this time together, the cross of Christ that he's going to right here, that is, that is everything he's been leading up to at this point, the hour for which he has come, is at the very center, not just of this moment or of the disciples or even for us, but at the very center of history. 
Everything in history is pointing to this moment. Everything in the Old Testament points to this moment coming. Everything in the New Testament we read points back to this moment happening. And the Gospels are centered around that very moment being the apex of what they're talking about with Jesus. And everything from the very beginning, the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, it pointed to the coming of the one who would be their seed, who would deliver who would deliver them out of their sin, who is Jesus, who would crush the head of the serpent, even though the serpent would strike his heel. And that's what we see happening on the cross. And everything at the end is glorifying Jesus at this consummation of the age, talking about the fact that Jesus, his death on the cross, is what even the angels long to look into continually. So everything in the entirety of history is about this. And up until this point, the Exodus... And therefore, the Passover, which is what they're celebrating in this meal, was at the heart of everything. The Jewish people did everything they did in celebrating this and pointing everybody to this and getting ready for this once a year because it was at the center of everything. And they were waiting for God to bring about a new exodus. You see, they were under the enslavement of the Egyptians, and now they're under the enslavement of the Roman Empire. And so they're waiting for a new exodus, a new liberation from their current captors. And when they gathered together to celebrate the Passover meal, the Israelites were looking back at what God had done and they were looking forward to what they had hoped he would do for them again in the future with this liberation. They were awaiting, in a sense, a new Moses, a new liberator to liberate them from their political, their economic, and their national slavery. This is what they were waiting on. Isn't that oftentimes what we find ourselves waiting on in the next president? We're no different. I think we're so much more advanced than these guys. We're not. Our hopes often are tied up in the same things. They were looking for God to bring a military and political redemption like they experienced through Moses. But their view of God was too small, and oftentimes ours is as well. Their hope was too limited. Jesus didn't come to be a new Moses. Jesus came to be the greater Moses. He came to fulfill more than what Moses came to fulfill. All that Moses did was to point to the greater coming of the greater one who would do much, much more than Moses had ever hoped to do. They were hoping to be set free in this time frame when Jesus is taking these guys to the supper. They were hoping to be set free from political and economic oppression, but Jesus came to do so much more. Jesus knew our greatest needs weren't political or economic freedom, just like it's not today. Jesus came to slay the greater giants of sin and death. And on the cross, Jesus actually did defeat Satan, sin, death, and hell in our place on the cross. The death we all deserve under the full wrath of God for our sins, our inability to live up to the standard of perfection for which we were created. We have missed the mark, and therefore we must pay the penalty for missing the mark. But instead, Jesus came to pay that penalty for us on the cross. What a Savior, amen? It's good news. So today we're going to see this picture of how he's inviting them to come to the table, to come to be transformed as he transforms everything in their lives. And we see, therefore, that the cross of Christ is the center of our lives as Christians. It's at the very center of everything we are. Our identity, it's at the heart of who we are, and it's at the heart of what we do. And it's why we do everything we do as a faith family. And if it's not why we do it, we need to question it. 
and in our individual lives, if everything we do ultimately is not to give glory to God, that's why Paul says, no matter whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. If it's not for Jesus being lifted up and and glorified because of what he did for us on the cross, that we need to reorganize or maybe cut some things out or to, to refocus everything we do around this truth. This is why we, as those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, love to partake of the Lord's Supper because it's our remembering of that and communing together, not just looking at the past, but communing together as we celebrate what Jesus has done and what he's doing in us as the Holy Spirit is with us and what he promises to do at his return as we look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb that will happen after he comes to get us and take us home. This is what it's all about. And these guys here are gathering together for just this. And the cross of Christ changed everything for them and it changes everything for us and it's still changing everything for us and everything in us if we are his so let's look at it again look at these verses 14 and on and when the hour came he reclined at table and the apostles with him and he said to them i have earnestly desired to eat this passover with you before i suffer For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, you might have missed it. I missed it for years. And it wasn't because I got smart all of a sudden or because I had some epiphany of the Holy Spirit, which would have been way cooler, but because I read somebody else pointing this out in my study of this, prepping for this, and it kind of blew my mind. I want to bring you into the light of something that would be very obvious to them, but it's not very obvious to us today. We're so far separated from this, mainly because we're not Jewish and also because this was 2,000 years ago. But let me point out something really simple. The Passover meal was celebrated with your family. It's celebrated with your family. So I think a major portion of what's happening here is the inauguration of what the church is supposed to be, what we're supposed to be as the body of Christ gathered together. The cross of Christ creates a new, more intimate family for us who find ourselves hoping in Jesus. Do you hear me? The cross of Christ creates a new, more intimate family for us who find our hope in Jesus. You see, the Passover meal that was celebrated with the family, this is how it would go. The head of the family would stand up and would begin to preside over this meal, explaining the significance of all the things that are being used in the meal that point back to the Exodus story. So this head of the family would do that, and then the youngest in the family would ask the question, they would, they would basically say this question, why is tonight so different from all other nights? Right. A little side note, the Jewish family did what was instructed of them in Deuteronomy 6, which is what we should be doing, which is we should be speaking of the things of God as we lie down at night, as we get up in the morning, as we gather around the table, as we go about our ways. And this is what they would do at this Passover meal. It was there for this purpose, for making disciples. 
So the fact that Jesus was dining with his disciples, the fact that they weren't with their own families is significant. And instead they were with him and one another at this very important moment. And this was very telling of what Jesus was about to do. He's about to change everything. And if it hasn't changed everything for us, it needs to change everything for us today. It's at this very moment that Jesus redefines everything. Jesus doesn't just look back to what God has done, but he shows the disciples how even God's greatest redeeming act of the nation of Israel, the Exodus, was actually pointing to this very moment. He doesn't just get up and explain how the elements of the Passover meal point to all these significant parts. He changes everything by redefining the meaning of the Passover. He points it to the thing that is greater, the new covenant. The cross of Christ changes everything. And he knows that's coming. He's telling them. He says things like this. This bread, the bread of the affliction, that's what it symbolized the affliction that the Israelites went through in Egypt and on their way out in the wilderness. The bread that they received. So they break bread and they would remember the bread of their affliction and what God had brought them out of. And now he changes that. It says this bread has new significance. Look at verse 19. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He's saying, This bread of our ancestors' affliction has now become the bread of my affliction. This symbolizes my suffering for you on the cross. My being broken for you on the cross. It changed everything. When we take these wafers that symbolize the bread for us, this, this stuff is not just something we do in remembering what Jesus has done a long time ago for a bunch of people that we're now a part of. We remember that he actually took our affliction upon himself, our condemnation upon himself. And he took our sins upon himself and the wrath that we deserve was poured out on him in its totality and he then suffered until the point of breaking so that he became our bread of affliction. What he talks about in John 6 as being our bread, that we must eat him as our bread, our sustenance. Jesus says this bread is now the bread of his affliction. This bread now symbolizes his suffering in our place, his body broken for us. And listen to what Jeremiah points to this coming. Look, look with me, just listen. Jeremiah 31, verse 31 through 34. Okay, make a little note of that and go back and read it later. I'm going to read over it. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Look at verse 20. He follows it right up in verse 20 of chapter 22 in Luke. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And that cup of thanksgiving, most likely in the meal, is the thanksgiving cup we have of his blood being poured out on the cross, of God's wrath being poured out of the cup on him that brought down our forgiveness on top of the shoulders of Jesus, bringing him to the point of death so that he spilled out all his blood for us, washing away our sins. 
This cup of the covenant that once symbolized God's covenant with Israel to redeem them from their bondage of slavery to the Egyptians has now been given even greater significance. And it's much more significant than just a little cup of juice that we drink together because it's a cool thing we do when we gather to remember something that happened a long time ago that doesn't bring us joy now. We must be driven back to the cross because for Christians, everything revolves around the cross. You see, in Egypt... The story goes back in Egypt when Moses was led to God to seek Pharaoh's repentance. Pharaoh refused, and so God sent ten plagues. We all know them. If you grew up in church, and a lot of us did around here, you've heard them before. And the last one of these was the worst of which, which was to bring down the angel of death to kill the firstborn sons of all of Egypt. Do you remember? Do you remember? This is the last of the plagues, because Pharaoh wouldn't listen. God showed grace to Pharaoh ten times in a row by saying, hey, let my people go, and if you don't, I'm bringing a plague. And when he brought the plague, Pharaoh relented, and he said, okay, I'll let them go, and then he changed his mind. And every time it says, vice versa, it goes, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then the next time, it's befuddling at first when you see it, it says, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart, the next one. And then back to Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then God hardened his heart. You know how God hardened his heart? Not by being a mean jerk, but by showing him grace just like he shows you and me every time that he reveals our sinfulness to us. But Pharaoh refused to repent. So God told all the families of Israel to take a lamb without blemish, a perfect, unspotted, unblemished lamb, and sacrifice it, taking the blood, placing it on the the lintel and the doorpost of their house, to then take that animal, go inside, cook it all together, eat it all, and don't let any of it remain, and stay in your house all night long, eating that sacrifice, and stay under the cover of that blood over the door, so that when the angel of death comes through, your house won't be hit by the angel of death, and you won't lose your firstborn sons. So that when the angel of death passed over them, they would be saved. Notice this. They weren't saved because they were Israelites. They didn't need blood to do that. They weren't saved because they were a better people or because they were just the oppressed ones because if they didn't put blood over their doorposts or if they didn't stay inside, they would have lost their firstborn. They'd been killed. So they weren't saved because of their their racial identity. They weren't saved because of their religiousness. They weren't saved because they had the best and perfect religion. They were saved because of the sacrifice of the lamb. You ever wonder why it was a cute, cuddly little lamb? Why does God use the one? You think he used something really big and strong, you know? He uses the lamb to show the significance of it's his saving, not what you do, not what you sacrifice, what he provides in the saving. So now Jesus, at this Passover meal with his disciples, took up the cup, and instead of proclaiming its significance in light of the Passover, he shocked his disciples by redefining it, by talking about the fact that this cup that's poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood, the bread of my affliction, the covenant of the new blood, my blood poured out for you on the cross. The cross of Christ changes everything. You and I needed more than religious activity. We needed somebody to come show us how much we've missed the mark and then for him to live perfectly the life that we could not live and then die on the cross in our place, our death, our condemnation under our wrath so that we could be declared righteous because he puts that upon us. When he rose from the dead, defeating Satan, sin, death, and hell, he then declares us being righteous. So this blood bond that we grow up with in this genetic family God's given us, it's strong, isn't it? 
Blood's thicker than water. You ever heard that? Come on, I'm in the South. You guys have heard this. Right? Family's family, right? This blood bond you have with your genetic family is very strong. But the blood bond we have with one another, one another because of the sacrificial blood of Jesus is even stronger. That's why once you come to know Jesus, it might be that the people that are closest to you are the ones you're doing life with that love Jesus, even more so than your own family. People don't understand that. But that's what happens when you come to the table and Jesus transforms you. It changes everything. Not only that, by the way, but it changes even the leadership structure of his kingdom. Look at the disciples. They're arguing about it, right? Verses 24 through 27. Who's going to be the greatest? I'm going to be the greatest. No, you're going to be the greatest. No, we're going to be the greatest. And he turns it upside down and he says, I am among you and the one who serves. The one who serves will be the greatest. Not the one who acts as they are the greatest. Tim Keller calls this a reverse meritocracy. Give it to Tim Keller to put $10 words up there. It's more like a $15 word, isn't it? A meritocracy sounds like what it is. That you earn your ability to be the leader. He, he calls it like this. He says, Jesus is basically saying in this passage right here, that out there in the world, who are the leaders? The biggest successes. Here in my community, who are the leaders? The community of Christ. The biggest repenters. It turns it upside down. Out in the world, the leaders are the ones who have the best records. In this gospel community, the leaders are the people who have messed up the most, but who have repented and thrown themselves on the grace of God. The cross creates that kind of gospel community, that kind of faith family. You don't have to have it all under control. Good news, amen? You don't have to have it all under control. You don't have to have your life together before you come to Christ. You just have to surrender yourself to the Savior and rest complete, completely in His grace. That's all you have to do. This is why the cross of Christ changes everything about being a part of a faith family. It's no longer about what you're like outside of these walls and who respects you and who doesn't and how much you bring in and who all you're over. It's about who gave His life for you. And how now you're changed and your life is given over to him. That's what ties us all together. That's what puts us on the... There's no, there's no over anybody. People like to think pastors are over churches and over congregants. There's no way. It's an upside down servanthood. Your leaders in this church are the ones who should be at the bottom serving you. Not the other way around. This is why we go out to the highways and the byways to bring in the lonely and the poor. This is why we cry out to our community around us that we want the worst of sinners to come to our homes and hear about a man who saved the chief of sinners and that they can find salvation in him too. Because we don't look at anybody anymore with the eyes of saying, hey, I'm going to disdain that guy because of what they don't do. Or I'm going to look more highly on that guy because of what he's accomplished. Or I'm going to look at that family and think, man, they can't come to my house. They're going to judge me about how bad I'm not doing it as good as they are. We don't see that anymore. We see people in need of a Savior and it changes how we live. Because somebody saw us and God ultimately saw us in need of a Savior and he came after us. And he humbled himself to the point of death on the cross for us. And it changed everything for us. Amen? It's changed everything for us. Look at verse 15 again. When he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Remember I told you that Greek there? It says, with desire I have desired this. 
He's trying to really get the point across. I really, really have wanted this time with you. I really, really wanted to be at this place with you. I made sure nobody could interrupt this time, even though I'm going to be betrayed by somebody in this room. I made sure that was going to happen because I desired it with great desire. In other words, Jesus was stating that his greatest desire of all desires was to feast at the table with his disciples before he went to the cross to suffer for their salvation, for our salvation. And right now, right now, He is desiring you in the same way to come to the table with him. He wants you to come to the table face to face with him. He wants you with all of your warts and all of your scabs. He wants you to come to the table right now. And in light of what he's done, there's no thing that's worth not coming to the table. There's nothing that is worth holding on to instead of coming to sit at the table with him. He longs for you, so come to the table and be transformed. Come and feast at the table of sinners in the presence of our Savior. Let us not forget that's exactly who we are. Over and over and over again, we are sinners who need a Savior. So come and find healing for all your hurts. Come and find peace in the midst of your suffering. Come and find hope for all the hopelessness that you experience and live in. Come, all you who are broken and rejected, and find full acceptance in Jesus. No matter what you've done, no matter what you should have done, no matter who you are, no matter what you wish you were, it doesn't matter anymore because Jesus has done everything that needs to be done on the cross for you. This is who he is. And he's beckoning you to come to the table. On the cross, he paid it all. With his body broken, his blood poured out for you and for me. The new covenant. We couldn't live up to the old covenant. We kept falling down in the old covenant. And so he brought us the new covenant where he does it all for us. What a blessing. So let us come to the feast. Come to the table. And hunger no more. And thirst no more. Come to the feast. Come to the table and be transformed. I'm going to pray for us. And right after that, we're going to have some of our deacons that are going to bring our Lord's Supper components down. And they're going to look at you. They're going to walk through the aisles in front of you, and they're they're going to hand those toward you. And when they do, you let them know if you want it. If you don't, that's okay. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer in Jesus, I welcome you to the table, just like Jesus is welcoming us all to the table. If you have children with you, parents, it's up to you to determine if your children are ready to take of the Lord's Supper with us. If they've become believers in Christ, then they're welcome at the table. So they're going to look at you, and you let them know how many you need. And they're going to hand those out safely. They're going to give those to you safely, and then we're going to take it together. So let me pray for us, and then they'll come forward, and they'll bring the elements to you, and we'll take of the Lord's Supper and be transformed. Father, we thank you for what you've done for us in Jesus We ask you to work in us now to change us and shape us according to your word, according to your work, and according to your salvation that you have accomplished in your son Jesus dying on the cross in our place. Lord, you have passed over our sins in order to bring us salvation in Jesus. You have passed over our inadequacies in order to fulfill all you needed in Jesus. And now, Lord... We come to the table because we've been invited by your son, Jesus. So I pray that you'd work in our hearts, that you'd, you'd mend us together, 
that we might walk in your ways and give you honor and glory in all of it. And we ask that all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon audio from 12th Street Baptist Church. Feel free to share this with anyone you meet, and we pray that this sermon helps you to be more like Jesus as 12th Street seeks to make apprentices of Jesus by being a family for families.